Hey everyone, welcome to episode 5 of the Alan Wake Book Club. This is uh, episode 5 of The Clicker. Um, so with me, I'm, I'm Lance. We have Adam. Hey. And? Uh, happy Deerfest. There we go. And Mike? Hey, how's it going? Uh, Alright, um, so let's jump right into it. I mean, we're kind of... Uh, before we start recording, we, we touch on everyone's favorite character. Why don't you guys go ahead? <laughs> uh, Agent Nightingale sucks. So hard. Um, but so, he's well-read. I gotta give him credit for that. It's like... So, I think my favorite part about the Agent Nightingale stuff, which, which is really hard to pick because it's also awful, but my favorite <laughs> part is the point where he's like... No, he says something along the lines of no, I can't let him, or no, I don't want something to happen. And it's he's so close to explaining why he has such a stick up his ass the whole game. And then it's like, oh wait a second, I remember this. He reads the thing and you know gets uh, gets yeeted out of the door. <laughs> this is a real shame. Let's have a moment of silence. <laughs> Um, good, great explanation for what happens to him. <laughs> More than anyone else, I think, in the, in the whole series. I don't think anybody has quite as dramatic a pull as, uh, as the Agent Nightingale pull. He has a full, a full, full arc, <laughs> Agent Nightingale. He's in the scene for literally what must be 35 seconds. Like, he's caught you, like, twice now, almost. He's tried to arrest you several times, and, and it just goes nowhere. It's the ultimate dead end in a, in a game where everything seems to sort of have something to say or like it's important to the narrative in some way. He just, I still don't know why he's in the story. I can't figure it out. There's literally no explanation at all as to why he has such a hard-on for Alan Wake. It's just super creepy FBI soccer. Like he's the reason why we have all these protections supposedly in place. I guess, because he just uses his authority to cyber-stalk him? I don't know. He's he's not even there on a case, right? Because Sarah's like, I don't even know why you're here. What are you doing? Like, it becomes becomes very apparent to her that she's like, this isn't even, like, you've already broken too many things. This is obviously not uh, legitimate, Um, which is interesting. I I do think it's interesting. It's a a thread that I wish was, you know, was picked up in like Alan Wake 2 that never happened. You know, it's like it's like something that you think about because it's like he is so awful. There had to have been a reason. Um, and if there isn't, at least he's like compelling. At least we're all still talking about Asian Nightingale. I imagine there's like when they're writing, they're like, "What other author can we make him say? Like, what? How, how can we work it into sentences?" Because Yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna say he does say Stephen King twice, so they did double up. Also, Raymond Chandler uh, is mentioned twice. Yeah, oh, is he? I, I thought it was only in this. I forgot he had been mentioned before. No, that one's definitely dropped earlier. But also, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, the author of American Psycho, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal. Look, like the movie is great. The book also fantastic. Seventeen pages dedicated to the main guy whose name I can't remember. His like morning, like skin routine essentially. Like seventeen pages of like him moisturizing and shit like that. It's phenomenal. So that made me happy. Much better writer than Alan Wake. <laughs> yes. Also, that's... James Elroy is uh, mentioned this go-around, the author of The Black Dahlia, which is also an yeah. interesting character in his, in his own right. Uh, and because, I don't know if we're going to hit on it 
uh, later. I do think it's funny when Sarah Breaker is a little bit later in the in episode talking about his writing and reading it, and she says that he uses too much metaphor. And he's like, oh, no, we've never said that. And it's like, if you are reading the, all the manuscripts, he's like the most literal writer. <laughs> like, nothing is ever <laughs> metaphor. It's like, and then he walked into the room, and he was surprised. Like, it's like, it's so funny. Uh, well, he won't be missed. Yeah, we uh, had a, a moment for Agent Nightingale. Uh, oh, no. Uh, more on the, more Agent Nightingale. Sorry to cut you guys off. I didn't know we were going to keep going. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, at the first thing in this chapter, I finally realized that Sarah Breaker, when she is literally turning on the circuit breaker, is when I realized her fucking name was Breaker. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, it's so dumb. <laughs> I didn't realize it. I, it totally, totally took me by surprise. I did not realize that until you just barely said that. I was just <laughs> eight years old when I made that realization. <laughs> Super funny. <laughs> but we can move on. We can move on to, right. to the next thing. <laughs> so you, um, yeah. So everyone's kind of freaking out. Agent Nightingale gets pulled out by the darkness. Really, to start the episode, it's this uh, nice bit for the players. You get rid of Nightingale, and you just jump right into the story. There is one thing that is mentioned before the Nightingale bit that I do want to talk about because I think in the like little like, intro video, where it's like, bam, dynamic camera view, the town of Bright Falls. Uh, you hear Pat Main, and he mentions a neighboring town has something called Moose Fest. And I really wish there was more about Moose Fest. Like, what's this <laughs> dynamic between Bright Falls and what other, like, you know, product town is? Yeah, like, it. I never had remembered hearing that before, and now I just want to know about Moose Fest. But that, that was it. So, I got, I got that, is, that is funny. Um, I mean, like, I guess, I mean, I, I, it's it's funny to think about small town festivals because I I grew up in a in a very small town and we had Onion Days, which is like something that we have friends have talked about before, but um, not on the podcast. Uh, but you because you mentioned that you literally had me go, like Google the next town over to see if they had a competing vegetable uh, <laughs> festival because I was like, I wonder, I wonder if those guys over there. <laughs> have something, but they do not. I have just not. Well, and I mean, also kind of a uh, kind of small-ish town. I guess it's kind of big for Utah, but uh, I think Provo has Llama Fest, or mm-hmm. like Llam- Days of Llama, Llama Days. There's a lot of llama farms out here for no goddamn reason. Uh, they're right by like some Krishna temple. It's fantastic, but yeah, we still have a Llama Fest, and it's kind of cool, I guess, in a Peruvian kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, festivals, man. But yeah, and I think that that I think that seems nice too because um, I'm always the first to complain about how little we see the actual town in Alan Wake. Um, and this this whole episode starts off with a really nice flyover shot. You've got like townspeople, and it's I think it's a really good reminder, uh, even though it only lasts all of 20 seconds, that there is a real town with like living, breathing people behind all of this. Um, I think the entire the entire clicker episode it takes place at night. Uh, which is at first. I don't think we've had a whole episode at night um, before. I think that they always kind of start in day, and then it's very quickly night, but I don't think we've had one that's fully fully night until this one. I think you might be right. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I, and then I guess let's get back. So we have Barry. Go ahead. Thanks for bringing up the town. So, yeah, they start off, him and Barry are, are in the jail cell. 
Barry's like, he's never going to drink again. But then, yeah, Agent Igo gets sucked out. Alan's telling Sarah Breaker, you got to turn on the lights. It's too dark in here. The darkness is coming. So she goes, and to your point, she uh, turns on the breaker. Uh, she has Alan's stuff in her office, just kind of gives it back to him. Then uh, she tells Barry to make some phone calls. Or, I guess before that, Alan says, he's get the Cynthia Weaver. Apparently she lives on a power plant, and this is like normal to everybody. It's an abandoned power plant. They need to get the chopper. Feels out of place. Feels like Alan was right and has maybe gotten sloppy at this point. Like, I just need to get there. Listen, he knows what he needs to get to the end, so he's just taking every shortcut imaginable. Like, I'm just going to take a helicopter, because that's the easiest way to get anywhere. It, it is it's it is funny that the that, that hadn't been brought up before, but also it it's punctuated by how hard it is to actually get over to that helicopter. <laughs> oh god, like it takes forever. Episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, in episode four, Alan says, um, hey, I'm in the store now, I'm writing myself in. So we don't see any more videos of him talking to himself at no. all during this episode. So I thought that yeah, was an, an like... interesting one. It was kind of very straightforward. Well, Right, and I don't know if that's just if that's just because they didn't have the same ideas, or because we we had that sequence at the end of the last episode where he kind of like got caught up on what happens. But it is an interesting idea just to say uh, he writes himself into the story. Maybe this is the transition of reality kind of transitioning out and the story transitioning in because it was always kind of like a mix before, where like parts of it was the story and parts of it wasn't. And maybe now we're fully into the story. Um, and we kind of have to see that through, uh, which might be signified by, by no videos anymore. Yeah, I mean, he's been, like, running alongside himself, sort of, in the narrative for a while, and that's the point at which he's finally caught up to the point at which he caught up to himself in the story. Yeah. Which, which is... Well, and he even directly tells uh, uh, Sheriff Breaker at one point that, like, he remembers everything during this, and so... Now that he's like fully up to date, he doesn't need those reminders. He doesn't need to have those gaps filled because they've already been done. So, and that's why there's no more. Uh, mm-hmm. At least I would imagine why there's no more. She's a uh, she's very quick on the uptake to sort of the weirdness <laughs> of the town. It, it takes her very little convincing to just be like, "Listen, there's bad things happening. We need to get to a helicopter or something. Like, I need to go to the power plant." Uh, yeah. She's down like immediately. Well, she has right. a passcode oh, that a she tells people, it, right? Yeah, the night, the the night, night springs. springs. The, uh, yeah, yeah. She she uh, she rallies the troops. She gets the team back together with uh, the goddamn bookhouse boys, man. Yeah. It's some bookhouse yeah. boys. Yeah, um, and listening to that conversation is pretty fun. Uh, with the first oh, yeah, they're great. Uh, and then and then he's got a, a. It's like the father's pretty long. And he has a handful that are really short, and he he gets a woman who just does not listen to him, and he just says, <laughs> "Okay, but okay, but listen." And then it's like <laughs> he waits another minute. Okay, ma'am. No, no, don't hang up. <laughs> Wait for another <laughs> Well, yeah, before uh, this, the first like, 10 minutes, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm out listening to those conversations. Yeah. Before they say, I'm a literary agent. Yeah. That's Alan Wake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glad you're a fan. <laughs> Sarah Breaker, she's very much of like, we need to go now. And then like, you're just watching the phone calls. And she's just like looking at you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's like, she's on a mission. Uh, she spends half that episode just telling you exactly what to do. There's never any moment where you're uh, second-guessing yourself. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and again, I mean, that could be that could just be that we're kind of entering the fiction. I mean, we hit, this is the this is the point too. Like this is the the uh, the point of no return where there are darkness, tornadoes everywhere. 
you know, it looks like most of the town's population, at least out at night, are, are, are being uh, taken by the darkness. Except that one guy who's Except yelling at you. <laughs> yeah. Who's yelling at you about shooting off in the street. Yeah, and there, there are a lot of shows that do that, that, um, that specific trope of, the, of the, the doctor, the guy in the window yelling out against the chaos, which is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, very, very recently, uh, there's a show on Netflix called, what is it? Black Spot. That does a very good doctor in the window against the chaos. And uh, it's like, it was, it was funny because it actually looked almost exactly the same setup of the scene. I was, I was kind of surprised. I wondered if they had not played Alan Wake. I do like that there's a moment where she just, she's talking to Alan and, and she says, look, this town can't take this. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yes, things are weird here, but it's reaching a level at which like the entire thing will just start to break down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think it's something that you talked about in like previous previous episodes where you're like, there's a point in a story where like things start to get so bad. It's like, how do you get a, around that? Because it, it's fundamentally like you can't, it's like, in, you know, in Stranger Things, like if things get bad enough, like how can anybody move on with like a normal yeah. day-to-day life? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, because, and it was Stranger Things specifically, I, I do think the point was interesting, less so with Al Wake, is that uh they they announced that they're gonna have two more seasons after during or right as the third season i think was came out and then you hit somewhere in the middle of season three and there is literally an episode where at the end of it as it ended i was like i do not know how they're gonna do two more seasons because there is nothing left like that's like it's destroyed like there's nothing left there's nobody in town left like (laughs) the monster wins basically like even if they kill it somehow like they're still like all of these problems that to deal with, like, it was just, it was funny, it was funny to look at that, and, because it does make a similar parallel, where it's like, you know, we have tornadoes throwing trash, destroying bridges, and every, like, you can't, like, you can't just go back, like, there's the people missing, people are being <laughs> taken, like, it's, yeah. like, the town can't just be like, yeah, supernatural stuff doesn't exist, like, this is all just ghost stories, like, you know, like, you don't believe those people who talk about Barbara Jagger, like, dragging you down in the lake. It's like, no, literally, like, we all saw her. Like, <laughs> I fought my buddy. Like, he, he turned into a big shadow monster and started screaming, like, crazy stuff about his day in a very creepy manner. I, and then he exploded. I, I shot a slide out, he exploded. It's like, Fishing can be a job and a hobby. <laughs> yeah. And then you just replicate that to everybody left in town. Uh, it's, yeah, it's... It's like the entire police department is completely wiped out. Oh, yeah. But they, but they kind of fixed that before, right? When there's like, all this shit went down, and Tom Zane's like, and I wrote everything out. Problem solved. They've already got set up <laughs> that, they, that they can control that. Yeah, and then he's like, I don't exist, except to very specific people who are very, like, very, very want me to exist. Like, because it was like, everybody boxed. Yeah, everybody, everybody in this episode is talking about how, like, oh, yeah, like, Thomas Zane, like, wrote himself out of, out of existence. But, like, we <laughs> heard about Thomas Zane from Barry, of all people, like, two episodes ago, where he was just like, yeah, he's this guy, he's this poet guy, um, which I thought was funny. Yeah, they, I mean, there's a memorial to him, like, at Cauldron Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also the shoebox. Every time they mention the shoebox, if you guys have seen it, there's this great YouTube video called Nap Time, where essentially it's like this like child depressant. It's chloroform. You chloroform your kids, and they do it to a baby. And they're like, I keep it in the shoebox. And so every time they say shoebox, like, that's all I can think of. And Ooh. it's the most inappropriate thing, but that is like drilled into my head after this episode especially. 
it is in, it is maybe we'll get to the shoebox stuff a, a little bit later because it becomes more important but it, it was interesting because at one point you do find that manuscript page i think it's further along in the episode where basically uh it's described like thomas Zane wrote all this stuff and he wrote himself out of like he he sort of uh tried to fix everything and sort of the loophole that he left was if you leave something in a shoebox like it's still there Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. which immediately made me think of the, cause I was like, well, like what is he left behind that like has been in a shoebox? And the thing that first came to mind was in the first episode when you see, uh, his books in a shoebox in the bird legs, bird's leg cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I liked that consistency at least. Well, cause I feel like it's also referenced, uh, I don't know if it's in this or potentially a different game. I don't want to say too much, but the, the people in the outside world, like they might be aware of him vaguely, but they can't find any proof that he existed. They can't find any like record of his writings or anything like that. And so it, it is brought up again. I'm actually pretty sure it is a different game. But I don't want to say too much more because spoilers, so, I guess. Uh, that's yeah. what Barry said. He said, hey, you don't have any of his writing, but supposedly he was like famous. Right. Yeah, but, but nobody knows of him. He's like secret famous. Um, <laughs> so we so we have a lot of combat as we uh, as we work through the town. Um, I guess some of the interesting things. Okay, you to go to the Oh Dear Diner. You yeah. get to hear uh, Coconut again. Yeah, um, I and like then when you're in there, she, she asked about Rose. She's like, "You gotta yes. tell me what happened to Rose." Like she's just like all broken. Yeah, and he and he equates it to his own experience. He's like, "Well, I don't, I didn't remember my whole week, and then now I do. So she, maybe she'll be fine." <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's, there's that. I, um, I do think that, that, that at least in the commentary, it's interesting where they talk about how they had built the town much, much, much in advance before this whole sequence was even thought of. Uh, so they had to kind of rework the way that the town, uh, was built, uh, just to kind of make sense in the sequence. Um, which is, which is kind of an interesting, interesting point. Um, I had a huge problem right after... Right, right after like the main town sequence, where you're where you're trying to get through that little warehouse with the uh, the things that you shoot on fire, and it's the first, it's the only I think radio in this episode where he oh, just, just runs the, the prop of the ball. Yeah, I figured that out. I think five or six deaths in, they just run. It is so <laughs> hard. It is almost impossible to get through that place normally. And I, Wait, that's I used every after the I had. chopper though, right? Is it after the chopper? I couldn't remember if it's after or before, but that um, I I've never had a problem. I think more in this game than that sequence. I mean, even the bridge. I feel like underneath the bridge with all the objects was easier than that. Oh man, screw that bridge! It's so hard. Oh, um, yeah. Let's, let's see where we're at. So we're going through the town. Yeah, definitely the the most intense combat sequences that we've encountered thus far in the game happened in this chapter. And they're like constantly loading you up with uh, guns and ammo and and weapons and material. And Sarah's like surprisingly, I did like the fact that you she accompanies you through most of the level. Uh, but also that she's like a pretty like she's pretty good at fighting on her own. Uh, she's a good shot, unlike Mott, who's just garbage. Like she can actually hold her own. Yeah. Yeah. She she takes a a, a real beating, uh, and she's like down in guys left and right, um, which is nice when you're like accompanying somebody and they're not a uh, hindrance. Uh, they're more of a help. Yeah, just, uh, one thing I finally escort, noticed. Not escort mission. Yeah, I mean, nice. she's escorted you, really, because she's telling you <laughs> where to go. And uh, she, she never runs out of ammo. Uh, one thing that I found was interesting that I was thinking about in this episode, just because you're, like, swapping through weapons a lot, is that uh, you kind of have a secondary form of almost every kind of combat 
for like you, you have a shotgun or you have a hunting rifle or you have a flashbang or a flare. Uh, but the one thing that you always have is the revolver. And I just thought it was interesting that at no point they were like, oh, maybe we should give him like a nine millimeter or like a different kind of mm-hmm. gun. And I think it's it's mostly because like the, the iconography of just like revolvers have a tendency to like look good in like a mystery setting or like a like, you know, in a horror story, like a revolver is very much like a Stephen King weapon. Uh, but it was interesting like that. that they like never decided to to switch that up. Well, it's also kind of like a classic detective type gun, right? The 38 Special. You think about, you know, like James Elroy and Black Dahlia Murder and during that time, like, sure, they had the 1911 would have been around back in the early 40s, but like still, revolvers were standard issue police weapons for such a long time. So it kind of like helps tie into the uh, kind of like true crime or like, you know, that detective novel writing that he did as well, which is kind of fun. I think it's also just like the thinking about it more now, it's just like the pace of the combat really relies on you. Uh, having to reload things individually because uh, you know if you had like a nine millimeter or something you just load another clip and then you have a full round you have the full ammo you don't get like that cool reloading animation where you're like trying to get in one or two shots i'm gonna correct you it's a magazine not a clip yes yeah, whatever a certain type of, just the journalism training man it's kicking in i remember some stuff anyway but yeah so tell me, we all want like to get the reloading to... mechanic is very much important. Like they like the tap reload to so reload faster. Sounds like we all want to move further in the episode. But before we leave the town, a couple other cool things: the the, the bookstore. Um, and there's the note yeah, there about yeah. uh, all the Alan Wake books are. Does it say they're all on sale? If you buy all five for a hundred, twenty dollars a book, a hundred for the full set. Mr. Wake is in town. See if you can get them autographed. Um, what else in the town? Uh, you go into the church, and there's lit candles. And she says it's tradition to do this the day before Deerfest. I don't really touch on that ever again. At least I don't remember. You have candles lit in the church. Um, I think that's kind of it from what uh what I remember of the town before you go to the top. Out to me. From the town, like the uh, the fish plant or whatever it is, like the fish fish. I don't know what the hell you call it. Fishery, can fish, uh, whatever. Like it's just like really cool to be able to kind of explore those kind of areas, right? And like half the time, you're not sure if you're supposed to be going that way or if it's just a detour to get to one of the uh, loot chests or cash caches or whatever. But it's just really cool to be able to wander around that area and just be able to have a chance to kind of dig in a little bit more and see just more of the town that you've only caught in glimpses, but you're able to run through it. Like for me, that's just so enjoyable able to have a little bit more room to explore this town because the town itself is very much character um similar as i would argue to how twin peaks the town itself is a character in that show and so i think it's kind of like a nod to that as well that you just have the chance to kind of go through and it helps kind of flush it out a little bit more it grounds it a little bit more as you're even though you don't really interact with it a whole lot but it's just it's kind of fun yeah yeah um and it, it is something it's something that personally I always wish we could see more of. Um, you know, coming back going back through Alan Wake, um, and I guess just looking at it through the lens of of the kind of games that uh, that we have access to today, you know, ten years later, um, you know, we have a lot more games uh, that are willing to just kind of be slow or just to kind of interact in, in ways that, that aren't um, so action-packed and Alan Wake I feel like already kind of was in that direction um, but I mean you have games today that are like Gone Home or um, you know Firewatch uh, which have a lot more just like 
inherent narrative uh, and exploration. And I'd be really interested to see if, or I'd be really interested to see a game like Alan Wake in which you had almost an equal chance of just exploring the town, exploring the character, talking to the people, uh, kind of delving into the mystery in a more um, just direct way uh, where you're just kind of interacting with just that, that mystery of like, of because the town is weird. Like we, we keep seeing like these, these little stories of like weird stuff that's happening. Um, so it'd be cool to have a little bit more of a dichotomy uh, against the, uh, the action and the killing. I don't know. I, I kind of like the linear story of it. And I think it fits the narrative because Alan didn't write the whole town. Yeah, right. wrote, like, his his path. That's a good point. I, 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 do, I do like what you're saying, though. Like, it would be fun to explore this town and, like, maybe the DLC or if an Alan Wake 2, maybe he's, like, he's got, like, a dev kit in the house. <laughs> and he's, like, made a game. Him and uh, em- Emerson? Yeah. The last game? Yeah. Last episode? Uh, so, so at that point, you go to the chopper. You have that discussion with uh, Sarah and Alan that her dad used to work in New York. And that she used to tease him that he was um, Alex Casey. The comment about metaphors. And then, birds. And uh, they're a bad omen because I hate dealing with birds in this game. At least you have a lantern this time. And that makes it a lot easier. Yes. Yes. So you fall out, you get to the warehouse. You discuss the one radio in there and there's like no Pat Main. He's just like, and here's a song. (laughs) Which is by the band that... Also, he specifically calls out the fact that it's a band that reminds him of the old gods of Asgard because it is the same band, but they're going under their actual name now. Is it War? Is that their name? Yeah. War is a song. Poets of the Fall is a band. That's also the song that has that really incredible uh, in-game or like in-universe music video to go along with it, uh, which if you haven't watched yet, is still worth checking out. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. They got the actor... uh, Vicky Vasu. He's got a Russian name or something. I don't know. Did but, we talk about Barry the action hero? Oh my god. <laughs> no, we didn't. But it is a lot of fun. It the headlamp, his flaming yeah. eye of Mordor, and uh, the Christmas <laughs> lights. I just want to know what were the Christmas lights plugged into? They're all turned on. It's like but, a battery pack. <laughs> but like you never see. Like, I actually like looked around his character model to see if he had a battery pack hanging off of him. It's in his big they're... puffy jacket, <laughs> which he's still wearing, like in the, <laughs> the middle of all this. Uh, he's so lo- he's so damn lovable. Like, what a great character! <laughs> what an iconic outfit! Like, people say, "Oh, Alan Wake's jacket." Like, I want that. I want to wear that. Fuck that! I want to dress like Barry with his Christmas lights and his headlamp. Instantly, actually, instantly noticeable. I actually, sounds like you found a Halloween uh, costume. Alan Wake's jacket, though. I, I love that tweed. The elbow patches. <laughs> I mean, if I ever make it to a Comic Con again. I'm gonna have to get a wig. Listen, I went down that very dark hole of trying to figure out what fucking jacket that was a long time ago because there was at (laughs) one time an article on Kotaku telling you how to find all the clothes because like they went out and like sourced clothing for all the actors. It was a jacket from H and M, and like they stopped making it in like 2010 or whenever this game came out. And like you can't find it. You can't find a jacket that looks like that. That's depressing because H and M is actually affordable because it's all built using child labor out of China, Cambodia, and places like that. So it'd be like you know forty bucks. It's a great jacket. Which... It's like the H and M in in Sweden probably, and that's why we could never find it here. Well, on that um, note, I also going I through the okay. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna just try to move through the episode. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just just as a comment. Um, I did 
I, I did realize that that Onwake is supposed to be a closer to James Patterson in this, and that's like the Alex Cross series than he is supposed to be all of the, all of the authors that he gets yelled at, um, which are all pretty much uh, horror or more like dark authors as opposed to one of the uh, one of the most, if not most, mainstream author that exists, James Patterson. Um, <laughs> like. I, it's just it's just funny to me that that's like who he's supposed to be because he writes these the NYPD, um, you know, secret agent books, uh, which have, they have similar names. Like I now that I've looked at Alex Cross, I can't remember what the name is for the Alan Alex Cross. Casey. It's Alex Casey. There you go. Yeah, they're very close. All right. All right. So after uh, after the warehouse, uh, you go into like the power plant area. You're going through the kind of the electrical cables and battling yeah. those guys. A lot of platforming. Yeah. The, Which is not great. Not no. great platforming. No. And the developers are like, yeah, we put all this electricity in here because we want to add this extra thing so that you could like push them into Doesn't work. electricity. Never yeah, happens. It, it never works. It never works. They just, just keep walking run. towards you. They just yeah. keep walking towards you, even if you put the light in their face. Just, yeah. Oh no! I tried to trap them with the flare, and they just like ran around the electricity, one guy like out of the way. On there, but never again. Like one time, like everybody else saw this, walked around, and I'm like, "Oh, they're learning." This, this this episode more than any other, I think I spent most of my time just figuring out how many flares can I drop to make everything just leave me alone and let me run to the next location. <laughs> like I just didn't want to deal with most of it. Well, like there are some very fun action set pieces, but then there's also like a lot of this very close quarters. Uh, combat where there's always like two or three of the cops who are just massive and they and they take like all of your light and your shots and they always walk towards you no matter what and if you try to hold the light up to their face no matter how many batteries you use they just push you out of the way and then uh, almost kill you. I also ran past the objects, the big dowels that, that that try to get you. I just ran past them and that is not a thing that the game wants you to run past because for I think three different cutscenes after that you keep hearing crash crash and they're like trying to follow you up the dam to like hit you because you were not supposed to run past them um but yeah i was running a lot in this episode which i think is is one of the reasons why i, I completed it considerably faster than, than any i did other, like any i did like yeah. some of the set pieces though because i think we, we talked about the church already but the part where you're fighting outside of the church with sarah and you're on the church steps mm-hmm. and i think that's where the deer fest float maybe comes into play uh, like that was just, that's that's just like a fun that's like a fun set piece and I think that showcases where Alan Wake's combat is actually really enjoyable is when there's a lot of different kinds of enemies and there's a there's a sort of a variety of uh, strategies you have to take with them and you have enough resources to deal with it. Um, but the the moment to moment stuff was was not hitting for me in this episode. Like I felt like there was a lot of it and I just wanted to get to like. You know, there are there are probably two major um, like quest markers. Like these are the two things I need to accomplish in this episode, and there's a whole lot of filler to get there. Yeah, a lot of A to B. Um... Well, and one thing that I kind of noticed with this episode as well, especially compared to earlier ones, is that the story itself, right? Like it's been fairly, I want to say like more even paced in previous episodes, where it feels like it's like a natural uh, natural progression. But this one felt like everything just got ramped up. Everything's faster paced. It 
it just felt felt like there's more acceleration, right? So you're like in more of a rush to get to the next point because there's not as much that you're trying to discover along the way. It's like, you know, immediately what you're supposed to be trying to do the entire time you're just trying to get to that point. Whereas in once past, like you're discovering additional like, you know, plot points along the way and that will lead you to a different area. And so it felt a little bit more drawn out, but not in a bad way. But this one just felt almost like rushed uh, compared to previous episodes, which. Yeah, this is definitely, a, there's a lot of filler in this episode. Really cool environment of the town of Bright Falls and you get to the dam. And it's just really cool places to be in, but there's not really a whole lot to do except for to get from point A to point B, uh, which I feel is kind of a shame. I, I wish they would have spent more time developing a more natural progression or having like additional kind of like little plot things to help you get from point A to point B, or then just be like, here's your objective, get there as fast as you can, and don't die. Like, I, I also kind of understand why they're running out of time to do that, though, because it, the, the story is such that as time has gone on, the darkness is getting more and more powerful. And there's manuscripts to that effect where it's like, you know, I can't, the darkness can't attack Alan Wake directly, but it will throw like everybody else and everything else it can at him to stop him. And w once he sort of realizes, it's kind of, I mean, is, are like Twin Peaks spoilers a, a thing? It's like, what, 30 years old? You're fine. I mean, the new, the new season's not that old, but still, I mean, I, I think anybody... I, I, it, it's like when people were talking anyone about... Anyone listening to this will have seen Twin Peaks. <laughs> okay, well, well, season three, uh, it's sort of like the, it's the Dougie problem, where if, where if Cooper woke up and realized exactly what he had to do, the story would end in, a, in an episode or two, because you just can't, <laughs> can't have a full season of somebody who already knows what they need to do, uh, figuring out how to do it. So you have episode four where it's sort of like Alan understands where he is in the story and what he needs to do to accomplish it. And there's literally nothing to do but throw enemies at him between point A and point B because he knows where he's going. He knows how to get there. And, and there's like nothing else that really matters anymore. Mm -hmm. um, One thing I did want to point out while we're going from A to B, we do have our, I think our first sighting of the red chair as you're leaving the power station. <laughs> Top of a container. Yep. A bunch of beer cans around it. It is just looking at the power plant. And we're just like, ah, another red chair. I know we, just, we kind of point these things out. Uh, I'm pretty sure this had a manuscript page on it too, didn't it? I don't remember. There was, yeah. Okay. The manuscript page. I don't think it was anything like particularly important, though. Okay. See, from here, I believe you go to the, the station that... Let's you spin the bridge around, and in there you have an episode of Night Springs. Yes, uh, that's an episode that is probably worth dis worth discussing. If anybody Absolutely. wants to. Well, I think I think that that episode is the best piece of evidence to the thing that I had said earlier, where the idea of Alan being an idiot god kind of running through all of this, like that he at some point knew what he was doing and he created it. Um, with more with more uh, intent than I think he he explains, um, because I mean that's literally what the episode is. Is the episode is like uh, it's the creator of Night Springs wants to put an object of some interest in a woman's basement. Uh, he the woman gets her friend. They look at it and then he he nothing's there. It's just a dark a black hole. And then he pops into the, their story and he says, "Oh, I forgot to put something here. I'm really sorry about that." <laughs> it obviously was important, um, and then they just kind of have this meta discussion on on like the importance of an object that is you know I just some some object, but it it does I think play specifically into this idea of Alan being a creator 
of the story that is missing pieces, and he's not, um, I, I don't know, he's just not smart enough, I guess, to uh, interact with some of the, some of the things that he does until, uh, until he knows what he wants to put there. I mean, it felt sort of like a direct commentary on uh, not just this story, but just like this episode in particular, because it's, it's very much sort of that thing where it's like, there, I was going to put something here, I'm not sure what I was going to put here, but it must have been important. And if I don't put something here, like it's going to be a plot hole and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. Uh, which yep. is sort of like a, a major uh, theme in, in the way that this, this story starts to wrap up is like, he's trying to figure out, okay, where did I leave these plot holes? And like, how do I tie things up in a way so the whole thing doesn't just fall apart? Talking about Night Springs, there was an episode earlier, and I missed it during my playthrough. I don't know if anyone else caught it. If we did not talk about it, called one we just talked about is called "An Absence of Creativity." Before that, was one called "Taken in His Prime." Anyone watch that one? It was uh, when you enter the town hall in search of the helicopter keys. Be on the top floor. Oh, I think oh I man. That. No, oh, I, it's, oh, it's because it's on the second floor of the police station, and if you go to get the keys first, there's a cutscene, and it takes you out of the yeah, thing immediately. and you can't get back in. I tried to go back in, because I'm like, I'm going to go to the stairs after, and then I went in that room, and I picked them up. Like, oh, Damn. right. Yeah. Wow, did we all miss that? Yeah. I, was, I remember thinking about... No, I, 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 the only reason I found it is because I'm looking at the Wikipedia on Night Springs episodes. Oh, man. Does this mean have to, like, turn in our Alan Wake fanboy guard? Like, if, if uh, no, because I, ha I have the trophy. I've seen them all before. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the proof. I will. I will show you if I, if I need to. Yep. Pictures or didn't happen. How about this? You, you guys want you guys want to listen to it live <laughs> and sure. comment on it? Absolutely. All right. Do it. Freedom, a fusion of vigilance, conscience, and uncompromising clarity of vision. A need so fundamental it permeates our very being, and yet. A man may be brought to his knees in a single heartbeat in Night Springs. Tonight's episode, Taken in His Prime. For young Manny, the night hasn't been kind. He's a marked man, selected for a lifetime of servitude after answering an ad in the newspaper. But first, a little field surgery is required. Well, well, look what I found. Ah, please, no! Yeah, I think you're just about ready for it. Best if you don't resist this, kid. We gotta beat it out of you. What? I don't understand. What, what did I do? I just wanted to get a job in the service industry. <laughs> well, you're gonna serve all right. No! Ah! Ah! Please! Ah! There it is! It's coming out now. Right between the self-esteem and the childhood traumas. What are you doing to me? Quit squirming. There, I got it. Believe me, kid, this free will thing is more trouble than it's worth. What? What was that? Oh, nothing for you to worry about, Manny. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. We'll tell you all about that. Don't you worry. 
another vacant worker ant, birthed in fury and violence for the pleasure and convenience of ruthless and malicious men. Stranger things can happen in Night Springs. Oh man, I'm just gonna say, without seeing the video, just listening to the audio of that, that is like some straight up like rapey deliverance type shit. Like <laughs> the phrasing on that without seeing what's actually going on, it sounds terrible. Um, yeah, it's it's two guys in trucker trucker hats beating up another guy in a trucker hat. <laughs> Squeal like a pig. It's <laughs> yeah. all I can think of from that. Sorry, I'm sure it's very very fantastic, but yeah. There we go. Just want to catch you guys up. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure if I was the only one who missed it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think that is that is like that talks about an idea that I don't think we've really touched on a whole lot of, which is like determinalism or deterministic. Um, but basically, which is this idea that like free will doesn't really exist, that like we're all just kind of on a on a track um, that is a very complex track of like our environment, our culture, our everything that kind of interacts with us, everything that we observe and, and see and, and hear all kind of interacts into this one single thing and we aren't really choosing anything. We're just, our brain is made up of you know, certain chemicals that, that will determine our course of action and choice is just kind of a, uh, an illusion um, that we think we have, but because it's just so complex, which is like what uh, Devs is about, um, a new TV show, which is similar to Alan Wake because he writes the stories and then people have to follow the path laid out before him. Uh, but I don't think we've really talked about that deterministic ideas in general, with Alan Wake. Uh, that's, uh, sounds like that was uh, Agent Nightingale's real problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, like kind of yeah. expanding on that free will thing, like, you're absolutely right. I mean, even Sam Harris, a uh, neuroscientist, philosopher, wrote a really interesting, fairly short book called Free Will, essentially saying that, like, really there's no such thing because at the time we're consciously aware that there's a decision to be made. The chemicals in our brain that are responsible for making that decision have already been shut off, right? So... Like, it really does tie into like the whole idea that there is no such thing as free will that we're just subject to chem like you know whatever chemical things are happening or electrical impulses but it also is very much along the lines of a character in a story like the characters in the story don't really have free will they're doing exactly what the author is wanting to do and so it's like this kind of like a meta narrative on the whole story of alan lake itself where everybody is just a character in this story that was written by some kind of you know Blithering idiot god, and there's all subject to whatever it is, whatever their role is, you know. And yeah, it's kind of fun. I say that a lot, right? Kind of fun, <laughs> um, right? And and it it does. I guess we do hear a little bit about it too with um, with Cynthia uh, later on after after the helicopter. Um, we do finally run into her after all this combat. Um, she's running the uh, the power the powers plant apparently alone, um, and it seems like she's been running it alone for quite some time um and she starts to talk about her her purpose uh as as laid out um we find out a lot of things like that you know she's the one who's actually been writing all of the uh the paint messages not barbara jagger which i think we we had mentioned earlier that we thought it could be barbara jagger but it was it's definitely not uh, it's Cynthia weaver um and you know and, and but she at one point she does say that um Specifically, she talks about how Thomas Zane wrote uh, certain things into existence and, and how like, that's the reason why uh, she's been looking after this, this clicker. It's not necessarily because she doesn't really say like it's because she loved him or because it was important. She says, like, the reason I'm doing this is because this is what was written. 
I, I have to do this. Um, well, he, te- he tells her as well, right? Because she says yeah. he, he talks to her in the television uh, yeah. or, or from below. Like, he's still actively communicating with her is the impression that I got. Yeah. Well, she, she also said it wasn't because he wrote it. It's because, like, he was using her. Like, he right. knew how she felt. Yeah. So it wasn't just because she wrote it. It was like he was, he was using her emotions. And Barbara Jagger wasn't, like, a bad person. I'm not sure if it, we got that. She, I think she, she says she was nice and good. She was... Very, very nice. She was just jealous of her. Yeah. Uh, as it went down, so that that's as you're walking down, you have this stupid puzzle thing you got to walk around the building for when you first go in and see her. So you got to turn off the power somewhere else. The one little puzzle you got to do. So I do get think all it's dams to line up. And you walk I do back. think it's interesting just to note really quickly that Cynthia Weaver isn't just sort of like a woman who holds a lamp. Like she also, uh, in some respects, is a creative herself because she was a journalist. Like she wrote all the news articles about everything that happens. So her importance to the story, you know, is also as a writer herself and sort of, you know, she's writing stuff around the town. Um, but her work never seems to, you know, be taken advantage of by the darkness in the same way. She also mentions that she was touched by the darkness too. Uh, I don't think we know exactly how she was. We just kind of know something happened. That's kind of turned her into right. the lady of the light. Well, it does kind of talk towards the end of the episode about how she was friends with Thomas and Barbara Jagger both. And that, yep. like, you know, when the incident with Barbara happened and uh, Tom, like, thought that he could bring her back and all the craziness happened there, uh, that, I mean, essentially, I think you guys pretty much already said it, but that her role isn't really one that she chose. It's one that she was kind of, like, forced into. And there's actually graffiti in that, in the paint that says, I curse you, Thomas Zane. Uh, mm-hmm. As you're kind of going down toward, you know, like, getting to the tunnel towards the end of it. And so, like, it indicates that, you know, she's not happy with the role that she's been given. Like, she's essentially lost her goddamn mind. She got, like, all these OCD impulses about changing out bulbs, like, you know, 138 and 66, whatever, in the the room of light. Um, so, I mean, she's definitely not, like, a happy or necessarily willing participant in all of this. It's, but it's the role that she was given. And so she's not happy about it at all, it seems like. And, uh, it's kind of fun to like see those little. Yeah, I did it again. Anyway, but you see these little like nods that she's aware of exactly how she was kind of forced into this position, and that she resents it, and that she just wants you to hurry up and fix everything so she doesn't have to do it anymore. So she's got that kind of like old, tired, you know, kind of keeper type of. Uh, I don't know if that's the correct term for it, but yeah. Even the count of the red chair. She also had a red chair in her little area. <laughs> Same red chair. Yeah. I think it's just a model that they reused. One hundred percent. But I'm gonna read into it more than it uh, needs to it be. It is intentional. The placement is on purpose every single time. There is a developer that put it's that just a chair, chair. everywhere. It's just it a chair. They were like, "We need a chair to put here." They're like, "Oh, there's one outside that's already loaded into memory. We'll just pull it over here." Why is this chair on top of a <laughs> container, looking at the power plant from across the, the whatever the dam or lake or whatever that is? It's pretty because it's a pretty place. The red to put chair. A chair. The red chair is the actual author of everything that's happening. It is responsible for creating our reality. It's Thomas Zane. That's what it is. (laughs) The red chair is Thomas Zane. Under that, his cabin or whatever, where you had all the writings on the wall, red chair. It's it's in areas where it's like weirdly well lit. It's highlighted. When I shine a flashlight on it, it's also well lit. Meaningful. (laughs) It's Thomas Zane's red chair. Uh, But... Yeah, so Cynthia, at that point, Cynthia Weaver's going to take you to the well-lit room in the dam. Um, Takes you into a water pipe. 
Yeah, but then you then you get the call from uh, Barra and Barry. You hear it crash. Yeah. That's it. I guess you hear it go down. You look up and you see the crash, and uh, you're the you're the man who likes to break the rules. Rule number one: don't go out at night. Rule number two: keep the lights lit. Um, and so she's like, "Sure, go ahead, go break some more rules." Yeah, pretty sure you break both of those rules every single episode. <laughs> so you go to the the chopper site, and then birds over and over again. Yep, more birds. Just lots of lots of birds. During uh during combat, I'm very good at saving my batteries. Like I pace out my my light recharge. It comes with the birds, I'm fucking just reload this battery. I'm tired <laughs> of these dickheads. We're just gonna we're gonna kill them as fast as we can. Tired of this. Now, at some point in this process as well, there's a very important thing that's said, and I don't remember if it's in a manus- uh, manuscript or if Cynthia Weaver tells you. But it's in uh, talking about Thomas Zane, about how he felt like he could take shortcuts to kind of get the result that he wanted. Uh, but it said at some point that there are no free rides, which is a very mm-hmm. important thing uh, with how the story ends up, which we'll discuss, I guess, a little bit more. Right. I think, yeah, I think but, I said right before this, this uh, combat, and she says, yeah, it doesn't work that way. And then, just, and then he goes, I'm starting to figure that out or something. And she's like, you're smarter than he was then. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because Alan's like one of the dumbest people. <laughs> well, it's also he's he's doing the exact same thing. Yeah, he he's smarter than he was. Like you know, Thomas Zane was writing the story to bring back Barbara Jagger. Yeah, and Tom- writing the story to bring back Alice. Yeah, the exact same cycle. But he he realizes it. He realizes what's going on faster than Thomas Zane did. Uh, it's also, there's a manuscript somewhere here that explicitly talks about the fact that Alice is still alive wherever she is, and uh, she sort of knows that Alan's trying to come for her, and, and he knows that, you know, she's still alive. So her status is currently, you know, under the lake held by darkness, but mostly in good health. <laughs> Being treated well as a prisoner. Um, yeah, and then I, so we have a bunch more combat. We make our way up, uh, up the dam. Um, is there anything anyone wants to touch on specifically in that whole sequence? Because it's kind of a long sequence of climbing. Um, a lot of climbing. It's a lot of uh, running around. There's a lot of birds. We use that the, stupid uh, elevator. Yep. We use the light, uh, the big light up at the top. And if you don't walk to the left of that light, I found out, the, uh, the taken darkness people don't even move. Yeah, they just stand there. They just stand there and let you kill them. They just stand there. So, uh, See, that... uh, but so before you go up there, you also have so Barry and Sarah go into the the well lit room, or with uh, Cynthia Weaver, you hit the button and it crashes on you. That's when we have the the three kind of wire spools. Yes. They attack yeah. you, and you get you, well, you got to work your way up. You have that. You just run. You just run past yeah. them. <laughs> I guess that's easier on not night on regular mode. I just <laughs> killed everything. Yeah, I've been running a lot. Yeah, yeah. So you have that military grade light. You attack them all, and then you hear Barbara Jaggers like, "You're not going to get away that easy." And yeah. then the tornado comes, and you're just kind of making your way across that bridge, going it's through. Fun. It looks good. Yeah, like it's it a fun. it's a good looking tornado. I think the tornado is something that um, they had referenced, like in trailers and stuff. You saw it like moving through the town before. 
um, in pre-release materials, like they talk a lot about sort of the weather effects that they had and, and the different forms of darkness can take. And I think that the, a nice big set piece where you're running across the the bridge to the dam uh, was fun. Like I thought it was, I thought it was good. The platforming's not great as usual. Like the physics get wonky when you're on a platform and it like drops a little bit and then you're jumping and he kind of like slides off of things at random because like the collision physics aren't quite there or whatever. But you know, still like. You, you turn around and, uh, you know, in a in Uncharted, there would be a camera that was, you'd be running towards the camera and everything would be behind you. So, like, that, that's the moment that that was for me. It's just like, oh, this is like an Uncharted, whenever anything's coming towards you and you're running away from it. I have avoided death in this game up until trying to cross that bridge. I fell to my death <laughs> so many goddamn times. Ugh. I was trying to explore in the middle of it. And it was like, I right, turn a corner and you're dead. Yeah. See, so after all that, you get to the, uh, you find them at the elevator, uh, you run inside, and all the, it's very bright. You go in there, you have Cynthia Weaver, you have Sarah Breaker, and you have Barry. And you're all going down. Let's see, they talk about that there was a... About, it's, yeah, it's like a World War II, uh, like, shelter. Occupied the dam, the military occupied the dam for a while and built a safe room. Which is where Cynthia built the well-lit room. Take it, and I won't need to worry about the room anymore. Because 6 and 33 and 118 need changing soon, and I don't want to climb up the ladder to change them because it's very late, and I'm tired. And if you take it, I won't have to do that anymore. The page was autobiographical, a memory from my childhood. But I didn't write this. It was a page written by Thomas Zane. None of them were supposed to exist anymore. Alan, seven years old, would fight sleep to the bitter end. When he did sleep, he soon woke up, screaming the nightmares fresh in his mind. One evening, his mother, sitting by his bed, offered him an old light switch. She called it the clicker, and flicking the switch would turn on a magical light that would drive the beast away. To imbue the talisman with all possible power, she added that it had been given to her by Alan's father. Alan never knew him, and anything of his took on mythical proportions in his mind. With the clicker firmly in his hand, Alan finally slept like a baby. Now, almost 30 years later, Alan thought of this as he stood on the rim of Cauldron Lake, the clicker in his hand. He took a deep breath and jumped. My mind swirled. I'd given the clicker to Alice, yet it was here. Zane had written it into existence, in a story I had written. I can get to her now. I can finish this. Okay, so my original takeaway, forever ago, was not the Ouroboros that I think it's trying to say. My original takeaway was that Thomas Zane was his dad, and, like, had just had, like, a tryst in New York or something. <laughs> I remember, I remember specifically reading that just now and being like, oh man, I totally misunderstood this. Like, I did not think that it was like a crater crady, like chicken egg situation at all. I just thought, oh, Tom Zane's his dad. He just found out. <laughs> yeah, I think that was not an, ab I think that was a common response to that, specifically the way that was worded. Yeah, like, which is, which is funny now looking back at it, because I, I can see, I can, I can look at it and be like, yeah, like, I can see how that, that could have been the case. Um, but 
you know, looking at this from more of a like trying to understand what they're actually saying, it definitely is is trying to set up an, an Ouroboros of of creator crazy. Can you elaborate? I, I'm not familiar with that. So, so like it's a it's like a paradox where uh, so Alan Wake writes Thomas Zane back into the story. He says that he he wrote him to help him, but back in time, thirty or forty years ago, I'm not, I don't remember exactly how far away it was. Thomas Zane wrote Alan Wake into the story by saving the clickers. So, so part of Thomas Zane's story was bringing Alan Wake into existence, and part of Alan Wake's stories bringing Thomas Zane into existence in in this. Um, while they both are, are kind of grabbing from somebody who, who even in their own stories, and they both admit existed in the world before, um, both of them are, are creating a narrative in which they brought them in. Um, and so Norboros is literally a snake eating its own tail, um, which is kind of, it's just a, a circle, a closed loop. Yeah, because I mean, like, my biggest takeaway from this is, did Thomas Zane create Alan Wake? Like, as here's this page that was written back in the 70s by Thomas Zane referencing Alan Wake. So is Alan Wake nothing more than a character that was created by Thomas Zane, utilizing whatever dark power resides in the lake, bringing him into existence to kind of have like this kind of closing loop to all the crazy shit that Thomas Zane was responsible for? Is Alan Wake Thomas Zane's ace in the hole in order to try and finally kill off the darkness or stop the darkness once and for all, right? And so like, it really makes you wonder, like, does, is Alan Wake even real outside the confines of the story? Which is just, yeah, in my... I yeah. think he is. I, I do not like the idea that Thomas Dane created Alan Wake wholesale as an ace in the hole to, to fix any problems that the, that the darkness created. In my sort of interpretation, it's like a time travel thing where Thomas Dane exists. All this stuff at Cauldron Lake happens. Uh, you know, he writes a loophole... He's like doing things that Alan Wake wrote him to do because we're in the story that Alan Wake is writing. So it's like impossible to know if any of this actually existed uh, before Alan entered the story. But like Michael's saying, like it is a closed loop in the sense that uh, he's writing something that happened in the past to give himself something in, in the future. So those things sort of have to happen like again and again and again for the story to make sense. Uh, but like, I don't, I have, I have a very hard time believing that Thomas Zane is, is anything more than the character that Alan brought into the story. And at, at that point, that's where it sort of like kicks off the loop for me. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that interpretation. Um, and that, that specific interpretation reminds me a lot of the Jeff Lemire comic book, The Underwater Welder, uh, which has a very similar loop and also has similar imagery um, because it is a, a person in a, in a dive suit. Uh, but specifically in that book, and, and what I think is, is going on here, is sort of a time travel thing, where the reason that we see Thomas Zane in a diving suit potentially could be that the events are happening to Thomas Zane while he's diving, as opposed, like, in the past. And he is interacting with the future in this way, because that's the way that it was written. Um, so we, the reason why he can't interact as, as well as, like, somebody who's physically there is because he is still separated by time. And he's just like trying to help out as best as he can uh, because he interacted with Alan Wake. He knows Alan Wake's going to exist because he, he did write, you know, some story. And so this is kind of like him and then Alan Wake's peering back uh, at Thomas Zane back when, you know, he was diving in the lake. Also, it's colder in the lake. There's a lot of weird stuff. Just drinking the water gave, um, you know, gave Tor and Odin the ability to know events and, and prophesize events like, you know, 
Thomasine was diving in it. Like there, you know, there could be other effects. It is like it's it's a very interesting uh, sort of problem to try and figure out, though, for sure. Uh, I think this is this is also the point where I think a lot of people like lose the plot on Alan Wake, and where a lot of people do not like this twist. Uh, I remember like back when I was reading forums and stuff about sort of this episode in particular, and the way that it, it solves this problem is is a lot of people were more confused than happy with it. And like, yeah, to a certain extent, like it's it's almost a cop out because it's like, but that's also maybe the point of it in the story is that Alan knows what he needs. And he needs to find a way to get it to himself, but he knows that he already gave it away. So it's like, it, this is the only way that he can, he can think of to sort of get the clicker back into his possession. Mm-hmm. I personally, I like it. Um, I feel, I feel like coming, uh, coming into the end of episode four, I definitely get the feeling that, okay, like it's so super straightforward. I totally understand what's going on here. There isn't any other twists that are that are coming. Like there's no other weirdness. It's just Alan Wake and this and this meta narrative that he's invented himself, and he's gonna solve it by killing the darkness with this uh, this you know Uber weapon that that he's going to pick. It, it could be any MacGuffin. It doesn't really matter. But um, you know, you you kind of I felt I feel I felt that feeling pretty strongly at the end. But um, but I feel like this is a, a good wrinkle uh, in the story, and obviously you know there are more to come. In the next episode, but um, but I, I I like it just for the pure fact of it is it is taking that 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 narrative that that really does start to feel very straightforward um, and adding another another twist another turn, um, which I think is good. I think that I think that without it, um, I think it definitely adds a lot to uh, to the story. I don't think it's I don't think it detracts anything. Yeah, and another thing I mean story wise, remember. Is Alan saying like Thomas Zane's helping him write? So may have some in, kind of influences there mm-hmm. in terms of how he got to the clicker and things like that. So maybe Thomas Zane even wrote like, "Hey, just some put something in the shoebox, put this clicker." Or maybe he told Alan to put the clicker in uh, the earlier in the story. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is it's almost like um, Alan is aware of the. If we assume that sort of Thomas Zane did. X, Y, and Z, and Alan Wake is trying to write himself like an ending and try to try, try to solve this story. Uh, you're saying that the shoebox is empty until Alan Wake puts something inside of it, basically. Uh, where Thomas Sane has has written himself a loophole for the future. It's something Cynthia Weaver knows about because she mentions it. She's mm-hmm. like, oh, like I have the shoebox, like it's important. He, I've never looked inside of it, but he told me that yeah. like you know I have to guard this with with whatever. Uh, until Alan opens the shoebox, there's maybe there's nothing in it. Schrodinger shoebox. Yeah, <laughs> and then he pl- he places a manuscript page inside of the shoebox, knowing what the rules of the shoebox sort of are, which is that they they exist sort of outside the the realm of the darkness. The darkness can't interact with it. Uh, it's sort of like a place of safety. And then Alan puts whatever he needs to on the page to solve the the problem that he's reached, which is I need to find a way to end the story. I. Th- I like I like that idea also just from just from the narrative standpoint um, because because back then I mean ten years ago we had a lot of stories that had MacGuffins in them I think that today we have a lot more narratives that talk about the idea of a MacGuffin and, and kind of de- deconstructing that so I do feel like this is um, well not as like uh, in your face about it I do think that there is a certain deconstruction 
where you're like you're saying like there could be anything in the box like it doesn't really matter that it's a clicker the clicker is mentioned once you know in passing earlier on i mean it could, it could be uh, anything really um but, but picking you know just having this idea that there's an object that can fix this is a cool idea just from a meta standpoint of saying like i can write in this thing and it doesn't matter what it is but i'll, I'll make it have some importance um it almost is like an rpg element um where it's like you're picking your path um and uh all paths kind of lead to the same point um but uh but you want to give the uh the idiot god a pretending pretend to make a choice I, th I think the verbiage that's used in the manuscript is also really important and just looking at how the writers of alan wake have sort of gone on and explored that concept in, in their other games, which like I, I won't sort of touch on here just because I don't want to like spoil anything for anybody or sort of get into that discussion. But very much the way that they talk about the clicker and sort of the, the way that the clicker exists in the narrative and, and the way that, you know, all this is sort of unfolding is definitely something that they don't just leave alone. Like they go through, I feel like in, in subsequent games, uh, they definitely examine it which yeah. will be interesting yeah. to sort of look back on that. Definitely. Well, even in, in this Great game, in some of the, uh, the DLC, they actually address some of what we've talked about. Like the whole idea of leaving this kind of like blank space, create whatever kind of solution that you need to. Um, it is part of, I think, in like DLC 1 or 2. I haven't played I'm the DLC yet, about. so uh, we'll, we're going to talk about that. Oh. I, I haven't played the original oh, game. DLC is really I'm going to stop talking then. <laughs> I played it once, so I don't remember a lot of it, but um, I remember it being being... Yeah, pretty, pretty fun. Well, they also hint at it in the next episode as well. So it's not like much of a spoiler, but they expound upon certain things, which I'm really excited to get into. Hence, All right, so with that, any, any, like, I think we summed up our, our thoughts on episode five, The Clicker. Any, any parting thoughts before we, we end this? Um, I, I, do, I, do think, I do think that it was funny that one of the explanations of why there's this military bunker is that there was an occupation in World War II um, in America. Washington? Yeah, it's just kind of like, it's, it's, I think it's a very funny explanation. I think it makes more sense outside of, of the United States because, like, we, we do have, like, military bases in the United States, but, like, we don't really, like, we didn't really, like, create any specific ones for World War II on our own soil that we don't we didn't repurpose or take down or, or use today. Like we didn't build stuff inside dams. We just built like, I don't know, it's, just, it's like an interesting way to explain it. Cause like you would say it differently if you were American than you would in that context. We built stuff on a hill in San Pedro. Yeah. There's these old things that are, they've gotten destroyed that were to watch the waters in case the Japanese came at us. Yeah. There yeah. was like a bunch of little bases in the hills in California. That's true. That's true. Um, but not in a dam, probably inside yeah. Washington State. Yeah. I, <laughs> unless it was controlling the power plant, unless it was like a power about, issue. Um, Hoover Dam, because I feel like Hoover, Hoover Dam had like uh, an office, but I think it got repurposed as soon as the war was over. If I remember correctly, Hoover Dam had had something, but it's just it was just a funny way they said it because instantly I, I I listened to it and I was like that doesn't sound like America at all. <laughs> I was like, well, what a throwaway line. Yeah, uh, we have this room because the military. What? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. I guess military industrial complex um, getting out of yeah. hand again. It honestly reminded me of um, Disco Elysium, and I, I won't get into spoilers in that with that game because it, it's very new and very easy to spoil. But it did remind me of, of just the feel of Disco Elysium, where you're kind of in this. The world is in this kind of post-industrial um, 
like I don't know, diaspora almost. Uh, so it had that feeling where where there were a lot of throwaway lines in that game where they're like, "This was just something that the military put up," and it's like, oh, "Okay," and that just kind of solves any any sort of question you have about why there are bunkers and bases just scattered throughout the landscape. Um, but yeah, no, it's that's funny. Uh, ben, any thoughts on episode five? Uh, no, not not that we sort of haven't already discovered i think just some takeaways from this episode for me that i was trying to sort of pay attention to especially with where the narrative is going is uh just sort of some of the discussions about you know i think there's a lot of mention talks about like free will in this episode there's a lot of talks about like you know determinism and sort of the the time loop stuff that we discussed and and figuring out what came first and sort of how you can act within the story. I think Agent Nightingale is is an actor in the story who had absolutely no control over himself at any point, uh, despite his best efforts. I, I think that, uh, you know, Cynthia is also a, a character in the game who, you know, she serves an incredible purpose and, and arguably she's like a, a very heroic character in her own right, uh, but she also didn't choose to do it. It was sort of a path that was that was thrust upon her by by people who were sort of controlling the story. And everything sort of exists as these these creatives are are defining it or or you know shaping Bright Falls. Uh, but the thing going forward that I think is is most important to remember is just like the danger of leaving things in the margins where people can take advantage of that, and sort of uh, how that's something that Alan has to be very careful of going into the next episode. And that's also a place where you know Thomas Zane and the Anderson brothers had failed before. Yeah, like the whole idea of there, yeah. I mean, just there are no free rides. Um, absolutely right. Like everything has to be explained in a kind of. It might not make the most sense. Like Nightingale. I mean, I feel like he just say what the fuck about his entire character and interactions within this entire story, and uh, there's no explanation really needed for that. Like it would be nice if there was one. Um, but yeah. So I mean, just this chapter in particular is kind of like a nice kind of climactic moment. Like we're on the cusp of. Figure, like having a final answer to everything. Um, it's very action-packed lead up to all of that. Um, it's very, again, like it feels very rushed, uh, but as you kind of said, like once you know what you need to do, there's no sense in lollygagging around, you know, just get from point A to point B. So I feel like it's a little bit shorter of an episode, for sure. But there are a lot of really interesting concepts that are brought up, like the whole idea, of, again, of free will, of, I mean, uh, the time travel thing I hadn't really ever considered before, but that makes me very intrigued, especially with you know quantum break and potential other stuff going on there. So um, it just it, it brings up a lot of really interesting uh, questions and and possibilities, uh, which is very you know enjoyable. Well, I want to thank you guys for this discussion. I, I always have kind of listen listen to hearing you guys' thoughts and connections on this. Um, so th that is episode five, the clicker in a nutshell. So I'm Lance. We had, we had Adam. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> ben. Uh, what was the other one? Happy Moose Fest. Yeah. Happy Moose Fest. There you go. <laughs> Moose Fest. We had Mike. See ya. Uh, and we are the Alan Wake Book Club. So thank you for listening.
harbingers of war with the nature revealed and our chances flowing by if I can let the memory heal I will remember you with me on that And we're already too late if we arrive at all. 